The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. I'm going to start this evening talking to you about the life of bees. I don't know whether there's anyone on the call this evening who has any kind of experience with bees. Maybe you were once a beekeeper, uh, you know something about apiculture. Um, but most of us don't really know much about bees. We don't spend much time studying them. We don't really know much about them. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time in my introduction just talking to us about the life of bees. Now, we all know that some species of bees, not all, but some live socially. They live in colonies. And so when we see a beehive, we know that it's not just, you know, a a daddy bee and a mommy bee and their children. It's a, it's a colony of bees. And, and most at times, this colony is filled with female bees, the worker bees. What's interesting about bees, which I did not know before I, I began this study, is that bees don't only have two pairs of eyes. So when we see a photo of a bee, of course, we see these two large eyes on the side of their head, just like any other insect would have. But bees also have three very small eyes in the center of their forehead. And these small eyes are meant to provide information to them about light intensity. So bees have five eyes and the extra eyes that bees have is for them to be able to perceive light. Okay, the next interesting thing about bees is that they demonstrate what we call altruistic behavior, altruistic behavior, meaning that they show a selfless concern for others above themselves. And this is actually the reason why they live in colonies. The scientific word for it is eusociality, but they have this structure where they live in a group, they live in a community, and they are altruistic creatures. So they seek the good of the group above their own needs. And finally, the last thing I'm gonna tell you about bees is that they are a haplodiploid species. Now, I'm just gonna ask you to follow me here for a moment. You need to get this. It's a little technical. I didn't understand it at first, but I'm gonna do my best to explain it because it's important to what we're going to look at subsequently. So bees are what we call haplodiploid, haplodiploid. What this means is that female 
bees develop from the fertilized egg. So when a bee's egg is fertilized, that egg will become a female bee. When the egg is unfertilized, in other species, nothing would happen to that egg, but in bees, that's where males come from. So you have fertilized eggs that develop into females, and you have unfertilized eggs that develop into males. Now, males are haploid. It means that they only have one copy of each gene. Female bees are diploid, which means that they have two copies of each gene. And if just to put this into context for you, you might remember from high school genetics class that humans are diploid. So we have 46 chromosomes, right? We have two, we have 22 sets, 22 pairs, and you get two pairs each from your mom and your dad. And the way that those genes will combine, the combination that they make is what gives rise to who you are. The reason why you are so different from your siblings is because of the way those 22 from your mom and 22 from your dad uh, added up. And I realize that 22 times two is not 46, but that's as far as we're gonna get into the genetics, but just, just trust what I'm saying. So male bees are haploid. They only have one copy of each gene. Female bees are diploid. They have two copies of each gene. What this means is that daughter bees will share 100% of their father's genes, but they only get 50% of their mother's genes because the offspring will get one gene from each, the mother and the father. So since the father only has one set of genes, they get 100% of those genes. And since the mother has two sets of genes, they'll only get half, 50%. I hope some of you are still with me. Just try and carry on, we're almost done. What this means is that daughter bees will share 75% of their genes with each other. And so it means that daughter bees are closer to one another genetically than they are to their mothers. They only have 50% of their maternal genetic material, but they, they share 75% of their genetic material with their, with their sisters. And so biologists call this phenomena super sisters. We don't see it in humans because humans are diploid, but because bees are haplodiploid, this phenomena occurs. And what that actually means, the reason why I had to take my time to explain that is because in bee colonies, in the, in the hive or in the community in which bees live in, the female workers often do not reproduce. Their task is simply to work for the livelihood or the good of the colony. But since they don't reproduce, biologically, it makes sense for them to be able to give support to their sisters who can rise up to become the queen bees. So this is the way that sister or worker bees are able to ensure that their genetic material gets passed on. They won't pass it on through their offspring because they won't reproduce, but they can pass it on if they support their sister bee to become the queen bee. So I hope that you find that interesting. I found it fascinating. I just want you to park that in the back of your mind. I know that you're not gonna get all of it, but let me just recap. Number one, bees live in colonies. They're social creatures. Number two, 
bees have extra sets of eyes to allow them to perceive the light. So bees have five eyes and not two eyes. Number three, bees are altruistic, meaning that they show a selfless concern. They're, they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of the colony. And last point, bees are haplodiplic, which means that they share more genetic material with their sisters than they do with their uh, parents or with their offspring, depending on the direction you're moving into. But since female workers in the colony will not reproduce, that's not their function, they are able to ensure the continuity of their genetic material by helping their sister to become queen bee. So that's also part of the altruistic behavior that we observe in queens. Just remember all of that. Now we could talk about bees all night, but we haven't come to the School of Ministry and Leadership for an apiculture lesson, a lesson on bees. So we're gonna shift now to the Bible. And last week, as I was thinking about what we should hear, what we should uh, receive this week, I was asking the Lord, I always ask him, well, what are we teaching next week at SML? And as I was meditating on that, I felt as though um, if there was someone who was listening to us for the first time, was a little unfamiliar with what we do at SML, and was just listening to some of the most recent teachings, they might think that I only use male examples. I was listening back to some of the um, some of the teachings and realized that there were a lot of male pronouns. There was a lot of he, he, he. And so as I thought about that, I, I also realized that over the years, for as long as we have been running the School of Ministry and Leadership, I've actually never taught on Devorah or Deborah, as we would call her in English. And I wondered why, I mean, we all know who Deborah is. We all know that she holds a very particular place in the Old Testament. So I thought, well, let's have a look at her story. And so when we do turn to the book of Judges, we see that Deborah actually has two chapters that tell her story. But when you actually read those chapters, you then understand, well, I understood why I never actually taught on Deborah because there's so little that tells us about Deborah herself. Not enough for 60 minutes worth of teaching. And yet her story has to be significant because she's in there. So you have to do a little bit of digging around, you have to do a bit of unpacking. But as you begin to study the story of Deborah, she becomes infinitely more interesting. And so I'm trusting God that he has a secret powerful word for us tonight. It's a little bit hidden. So you're going to have to pay attention tonight. But my promise to you is, is that if you do pay attention, you're going to be blessed. You're going to receive this blessing. Hallelujah. So let's look at the book of Judges, chapter five, verses two to nine. The book of Judges, chapter five, verses two to nine. When the Israel, no, no, let me read it in the KGV. All right. Judges chapter five, verses two to nine. Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel. All willingly offered themselves. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes, 
I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anah, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased, they ceased in Israel, until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods, then was war at the gates. Was there a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye the Lord. Hallelujah. So let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the school of ministry and leadership. Father, we thank you for another, another opportunity to come before you and sit in your presence. We are seated at your feet this evening, Lord, and we desire to learn from you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to the head of this assembly. We ask you, as we always do, to have your way and your will in the midst of your people. Father, we know that there is a secret hiding in this teaching tonight, and we ask you, Lord, even as we know that you have hidden secrets within us, we ask that there be a divine connection, Lord. We ask that you will illuminate for us what it means, what Deborah can teach us about being a godly leader. And we ask as always, Lord, not for ourselves, but we ask that whatever we would do would be according to your will. Whatever we do would be to enable us to fulfill your call on our lives that whatever we would do, Lord, would give you alone the glory. All this we pray, believe in. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. All right, so I read from chapter five. Now, in this text, this is Deborah singing a song. So Deborah and Barak are singing. They're singing this song of victory after they have defeated their enemy, Sisera. And I need to rewind and set up the story for you properly, which begins in chapter four. And I'll do that in just a moment. But I started in chapter five on purpose. And I want to make a few points here. So when we look at the text, what do we see? We see Deborah singing the song. She's basically explaining to us what happened in the battle between Israel and between the Canaanites. And Sisera is the general of the Canaanite army. And she's talking about the leaders of Israel, how they were willing to go to war. And so she's praising God for their willingness. She starts off by saying, praise ye the Lord. Not only does she praise God for the willingness of the people to fight, she praises God as always having protected the people. And she actually explains to us how the battle was won. And we it's hard for us to see it in the King James, but when we see it in other translations and actually later on because this song uh this song is 31 verses so tonight you can go home and 
and read the rest of it. I only read verses two to nine, but she explains what we see was that the way that Israel defeated the Canaanites in this particular battle was that there was a storm. There was a rainstorm and it caused flooding. And as the chariots, one of the things that Sisera was known for was having 900 iron chariots. So far, far more military strength than the Israelites had. But because of this downpour of rain that floods the plain, the wheels of the chariots get stuck in the mud and then Sisera has to flee on foot. And that's how he gets to Jael's tent, but we'll get there in a moment. So Deborah is praising God for having moved nature to the benefit of Israel. And she's talking about how in those days, in those days, the streets were deserted. People were so much in fear of the Canaanites that they wouldn't even go out on the street. So the story is, is that there was a, a, a leader before that, Ehud, or Ehud, and Ehud judged Israel for many, many years. And there was peace in the time of Ehud. Now, when Ehud died, the people of Israel fell into idolatry. One of the things we know about the book of Judges, what characterizes it is that this is the time when Moses is dead, Joshua is dead, and everyone is doing what he sees as right in his own eyes. So we see the children of Israel following this continuous cycle when, when they obeyed the Lord, there was peace in the land. And when they disobeyed the Lord and they fell into idolatry, he would send the Canaanites after them to punish them. And in that punishment, they would cry out unto the Lord for mercy and then he would raise up a judge for them. So Deborah's story is found in the time of the judges. And what we see from the verse five is that this is a poem. Now, again, in some of our English Bibles, it's difficult for us to see that it's a poem. It might not be, depending on the kind of Bible you have, it might not be formatted uh, for you to recognize that it's a poem. But when we see the Hebrew, we see that it is, a, 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 it's not written out in prose. It's written out the way a, a poem looks. But when we read it in the Hebrew, we actually understand that this song, this, this poem that Deborah writes is actually known in the Hebrew as one of the, the greatest, one of the finest examples of Hebrew poetry. Interestingly, this song of Deborah is one of the oldest parts of the Bible. Scholars think that it dates back to about the 12th century before Christ. So we lose a lot of its power in English, but it's a song that would have been sung for generations to commemorate this great military battle. And what's interesting is, is when, we, when we look into the Hebrew, in the verse one, it actually says that Deborah and Barak sang this song. But the word, the Hebrew word that gets used there for singing, it reflects a particular type of singing. It's a kind of singing that would have been used in Levitical worship. So I just want us to understand the context of this song that Deborah sings. So why did I choose to read from the chapter five? Those of you who know your Bibles a little bit more, you might have, when you heard that we were gonna look at Deborah, you might've expected me to start in the chapter four, 
because of course in the chapter four this is where the bible introduces us to deborah in the verse four but as i said when i started the bible doesn't really tell us much about who deborah was we've got two verses on who deborah was and again we'll get there in just a moment but i was wondering as i as i was trying to understand who deborah was was there something that was revealed about her in her song? So not in the prose, not in the narrative of chapter four that explains to us who Deborah was, but in Deborah's own poetry, in her own Levitical worship. Was there something that we could understand? Was there something that was revealed about? And I thought that there was. So when we read this, song of Deborah, what do we see? First point, we see that Deborah starts by giving God all the glory for the victory. She starts and she says, praise ye the Lord. And so we see that Deborah was a worshiper. Deborah was a worshiper, first and foremost. The second thing we see in those verses is that Deborah had an eye and a heart for other leaders. So when she starts her song and she praises the Lord, she praises him for the willingness of the leaders. She's so excited about the princes who were willing to give themselves to the battle. So we see that Deborah has this eye and this heart for the other leaders who were in Israel. And as we continue reading Deborah's song, we see that she herself responds to the call of service. As she's telling us about how bad things were in those days, in those days of Shamgar of Anath, after Ehud had died, and there had been war against the Canaanites for 20 years, and people were too scared to walk out on the, on the main highways. People used to just walk through the woods and hide in order to move from town to town. Deborah says, things were bad until I, Deborah, arose up. I arose up as a mother in Israel. So Deborah lets us know that she herself was willing to respond to the call of service. And so, as I said, the song is long. It has 31 verses and it tells the battle. And I've explained that already. But what's interesting is just to see how God routes the enemies of Israel very similarly to what he did to Pharaoh and his chariots. He gets the, he gets the chariot stuck in the mud and the human strength, the technology that the enemies of Israel would normally have relied on becomes totally useless for them once God is fighting for them. When we zoom to the end of chapter five, after Deborah has sung her song and sung her song, the chapter ends, then the land had peace for 40 years. And so we're looking at a leader who was able to instill peace, long-lasting peace on Israel. So now let's turn to chapter four, to the narrative, and let's find out what it says about Deborah. So as I said, this was the time of the judges. It was a strange time in the history of Israel because they had no set leader. God would just raise up leaders or judges for them when they cried out to him. And they only cried out to God when they were in trouble, when their enemies were coming against them as a result of their disobedience. 
And so the other thing we need to know about the judges, which sometimes we miss, when we refer to them as judges, we might think that it means they were just the de facto leaders of Israel. But most of the judges were military men. They were fighting men. You look at Gideon, you look at Samson, you look at Ehud, you look at Barak. They were military men because God raised them up during the volatile times. He raised them up so that Israel could fight the Canaanites as they came against them. So let's read from Judges chapter 4. Uh, I can start in verse 4, but let me just set it up and read from the verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hegoyim. <clears throat> because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Verse 4. Now Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, and she was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Let me stop there. So that's all that we get on Deborah. That's all that the Bible tells us about Deborah. So again, just reminding myself reasons why we've not seen Deborah at SML before. But what does the scripture tell us? It tells us that she was a prophet and a judge. And other than Samuel, who comes into the story much, much later, Samuel and, and Deborah were the only two in the Old Testament who were referred to as both prophet and judge. And as I said, most of the judges who were raised up were military men or were fighting men. Deborah was the only one who judged both militarily and judicially. So the scripture tells us that she sat under the palm tree that was between Ramah and Bethel. She held court there and that was her seat. That is where Israel would come from all over the tribes to have their disputes heard. So she served a judicial function that the Bible doesn't really spend much time telling us about since Moses. We remember Moses, that when Moses led the people of Israel, of course, he would spend days and days and days just hearing their disputes until his father-in-law Jethro came and gave him a better way. But Deborah seems to have both these functions. Now, the reason why I say that she also led militarily, of course, she did not go into battle. It was the general Barak, who did that and who led the army. But it seems to me that she had this authority because Barak listened to her when she had the word of the Lord and called Barak and told him to gather the armies of Israel and go against Jabin. Now, what I find interesting, the Bible tells us that her seat was between Bethel and Ramah. And I think that this signifies the continuity that Deborah represented between Jacob and between Samuel. We remember that at Bethel, Jacob built his altar to the Lord when God reiterated his promises to bless him. And we know that when Samuel was leading, he sat at Ramah. 
So Deborah occupies the space between the two. And I think she occupies the space also as a, an inflection point between the two kinds of leadership. When we had the leadership of the patriarchs, and then we're going to have Samuel, who will be the last judge and prophet who will lead Israel before it's the time of the kings. And of course, obviously, Deborah was a woman and she was the only female judge. Now, I just want to pause here because I want to say that even though I started off by saying I noticed that uh, I've never taught on Deborah before and I thought that maybe someone who was joining us at SML for the first time would wonder that don't we teach, don't we use female examples? We do, we do sometimes, but I was feeling as though some of the male examples were getting a little bit heavy. I want to underline the point that we are not looking at Deborah tonight simply because she's a woman. And I make the same point this evening that we're not looking at Deborah because she's a woman. We're gonna look at what she offers us in terms of leadership because actually when we begin to unpack who Deborah was and how she led, it's quite powerful. Now in the English, the scripture says that Deborah was the wife of Lapidoth. And here is where the mysteries begin to be unfurled. Now, the Hebrew word that gets used here can mean either wife or woman. So scholars are actually divided as to whether that sentence should be read as Deborah was the wife of Lapidoth or Deborah was the woman from Lapidoth. They're not sure. And so that means that we can't be sure. But what's even more intriguing is that the word lapidoth in Hebrew means flame. It means torch. It means fire. And so there are some scholars who render that sentence as Deborah, the woman of flames, or Deborah, the woman of the torches, or Deborah, the woman of illumination. So I'm gonna let us sit in that mystery, do with it what you will, but it makes Deborah suddenly much, much more interesting to us as a leader. And then the final thing, I started off by telling you that in the Hebrew, her name is Dvora. In English, we put in the syllable, consonant, what, what is it called, the letter? We put in the letter, we put in the letter E, and we make it Deborah, and the word devora actually means be. So see, I told you that if you're gonna to get tonight's revelation, you need to pay attention. So Deborah becomes interesting to us. Her name means be. So let's go back and recap what we learned about bees as we started this evening. Number one, that bees are social creatures. They live in community. That number two, bees have extra eyes. They don't have two eyes, they have five eyes. And the eyes, the little eyes that they have in the center of their head is for them to be able to perceive light, for them to be able to perceive flame, for them to have illumination. Bees are altruistic. They operate with selfless concern. They're worried more about the community than they are for themselves. And bees are haplodiploid. 
meaning that they share more genetic material with their sisters than they would with their offspring. And so their altruistic behavior results from them working for the good of the community. And they do that by raising up their sisters as queen bee, because the female workers will have no offspring. And remember, I said that if we compare this to humans, humans are diploid. So we inherit one set of genes from our mothers and one set of genes from our fathers. But bees are haplodiploid. So genetically, they share more material with their sisters, their, their siblings, than they do with their offspring or their parents. So now let's go back to Deborah's story, to the rest of it. And when we look at Deborah's story, even though this was my complaint, that the reason why I couldn't teach on Deborah before was that there wasn't enough material about her. We did, the Bible just simply didn't tell us enough about her. When we look at the rest of chapter four and the rest of chapter five, we actually see that in fact, those texts are not about Deborah, but they are about Deborah and Barak and Jael. In other words, these three people form a system. So this is the third week in a row I'm talking to you about systems, but follow me once again. So what have we been saying about systems? We've been saying that systems are the, the, the totality of the interactions between the components of the system, so the people in the system, and the way that those people are organized or structured or glued together, their shared histories, their capacities, the norms and, and values of that system, um, other procedures or things that would serve to organize them. So Deborah's story is not about her as a single individual or a lone entity. Deborah's story is intimately tied with Barak and Jael. The three of them form this system. And we see that when Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army appears, what does Deborah do? She calls for Barak and she prophesies to him to round up the army and to go and fight. And if you remember the story, you'll remember that Barak agrees, but only if Deborah will come with him. He says, if you come with me, I'll go. If you don't come, I won't go. And again, scholars are a little bit divided on this. They are divided as to whether Barak, uh, whether he demurred, whether he didn't, whether he didn't want to follow Deborah's leadership, whether her being a woman was an issue, whether he was afraid of Sisera's army. There's a little bit of a lack of clarity there, but we see that Barak is mentioned in the Hall of Faith. He's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. So it couldn't have been a faith issue. There must have been something else. But whatever it was, he does go. Deborah says, I will go to the battle with you. And so the two of them go to the battlefront. But she says, Deborah says, because of the course you are taking, Sisera will not be delivered into your hands. He will be delivered into the hands of a woman. And so that sentence there, is what gives scholars the confusion because of the course that Barak is taking. Well, what is the course? Is it, is it that he resisted at the beginning, that he demurred? Was it the physical route he was taking? Was it God's will? What, what was it? We don't know. But when Deborah says that, that 
Sisera will be delivered into the hand of a woman. All readers naturally assume that Deborah is referring to herself because she's at this point, the only woman in the story. She says the honor will go to a woman. And then as we keep reading, the story shifts and the story then tells us about this family that lives on the plains, Heber, who was a Midianite, and so he was a descendant related to Moses's in-laws and his wife, Jael. And because they were Midianites, they had a treaty or they had an alliance with the Canaanites. They weren't, um, they weren't at war either with Israel or with the Canaanites. They were a neutral party, but they just had their tents in this vicinity. And the story tells us that as the rains fall and as the floods come and as Sisera's chariot gets stuck in the mud and he flees on foot, he finds himself in Jael's tent. And so naturally, because of this neutral alliance that Jael's husband had with the Canaanites, Sisera felt welcome. He didn't feel as though he was on enemy territory when he saw Jael. So he asks her for a drink of water. And Jael being very hospitable, she brings him in. She knows that he's a man of stature. She treats him very well. Instead of giving him water, she gives him milk. She tells him to relax, that he, he is fine with her. He tells her to guard the tent and if anyone comes looking for him, that she should just tell him that he, she hasn't seen anyone. And eventually, Sisera falls asleep. And we remember the story that as he is sleeping, Jael takes the peg of her tent and she takes a hammer and she drives the nail into Sisera's head. And then when the armies come around, she's able to inform Barak that the one that they are looking for is dead in her tent. Now, I just wanna pause there for a minute because I don't think we think about how tough Jael was. How many of us, men or women, could kill a sleeping man with one touch? Jael knew exactly what to do. She knew where to put the nail. She had the strength to do it in one fell swoop. She didn't hesitate. She wasn't worried about what happens if he wakes up. She kills him. And so this is the story. And this is the story then that Barak and Deborah sing in, in Deborah's song. So we see that their stories are intertwined, that this victory could not have come about without any of them, that Deborah is key, that Barak is key, and that Jael is key. And so the honor goes not only to Barak, who represents the physical force, it goes not only to Deborah, who represents the spiritual authority, but it includes Jael. It wouldn't have been possible without her. And we see Jael mentioned in Deborah's song. She's mentioned in the one part that I read, but then she's mentioned in the verse 24, where Deborah sings, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Midianite, most blessed of tent dwelling women. 
He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank, he fell. There he lay, at her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. So Deborah memorializes Jael's role in this victory for generations. And so here is where we begin to see Deborah the bee leading with those characteristics. She leads in such a way that puts the community first. So before this war, she was just sitting, making herself available to the tribes of Israel to be able to rule on their disputes. And then when the Lord speaks to her to call Barak to the battle, and Barak says, okay, I've received the word of the Lord, but I need you to come with me. She agrees to go to the battlefront. So as a prophet, she uses her additional eye, that third eye, the eye that brings lights, that brings illumination. Deborah, the woman of illumination, she uses that additional prophetic eye. She's altruistic. Deborah could have stayed under her palm tree between Rama and Bethel, but she goes into the heart of the battle. And we see Deborah lifting up another woman. This is where this haplodiploidy comes in. This is where this phenomenon of the super sisters comes in. Again, the Bible is silent as to whether Deborah was a mother or not. She refers to herself as the mother of Israel. But as to whether she was a biological mother or not, there's no evidence biblically about that. But she takes the opportunity to lift up another woman, to be honored, to be celebrated. She sings that Jael is blessed of all the tent-dwelling women, and Jael gets remembered henceforth. So what are the points that we want to make about Deborah being a powerful leader that you and I need to learn and, and apply to our own leadership? Number one, that Deborah was a worshiper. We see this in her song. She starts off by saying, oh, praise ye the Lord. And so you need to be a worshiper to become a powerful, powerful leader for God. The type of leadership that Deborah demonstrates is the type of leadership that encourages people to volunteer their service. She sings about how the great princes were willing to go to the battle. So she's speaking not only of Barak, but she's speaking about the rest of them, the rest of the commanders in the army were willing to go under the, the, the command of a woman. A woman prophet said, thus saith the Lord. And so they followed. And so you need to learn to lead in such a way that people will follow you. People will want to follow you into war. The third point, that Deborah was a facilitator. She enables Barak's leadership. 
Barak said, I'm not going to go if you don't come with me. And so she goes along with him. She accompanies him. She walks alongside him because she knew that he needed, whether it was just her physical presence, whether it was the her spiritual authority, and by agreeing to accompany him, she facilitates his leadership. And we can actually look at the alliance between Deborah and Barak as similar to that of Moses and Joshua. We saw that in the battle against Amalek, we had Moses on the mountaintop praying, and when he raised his hands, the battle went in favor of the Israelites. And when his hands got heavy, when his arms got heavy, the battle went the way for the Amalekites. So you've got one who is leading on the mountain and one who was down fighting in the valley. And we see the same thing with Deborah and Barak. And so as a leader, you need to be able to enable the leadership of others so that others can develop and flourish around you and so that others can learn to lead in your presence. The fourth point, that Deborah was altruistic, that Deborah acted in such a way that was for the greater good of the colony, the greater good of the community. She put the needs of others first and she lifts up others. So we see her lifting up Jael to that, to that place of honor. And as a leader, you need to make way for others. You need to learn how to praise people in public. You need to learn how to give people the credit when it's due. The next point is that Deborah's song tells us much more about the events than her history does. As I said, we learn more about Deborah from her song in chapter five of the book of Judges than we do when Deborah is introduced to us in prose, when she's introduced in the narrative in chapter four, verses four and five. And this is a subtle point, but I don't want us to miss it. When we read Deborah's song, when we hear her song, when we sing her song, it actually tells us that Deborah was a woman of deep passions. And maybe those deep passions were not totally obvious in her leadership. Maybe they weren't totally obvious to others. And I want to make this point because it might be the case for you that there might be more passion in you as a leader than those who are taking account of you might miss. Maybe you're quiet. Maybe you're not expressive in public. Maybe you are hiding your potentials and your talents for various reasons. But when you're given the chance to put yourself in your own words, in your own story, when you're given the chance to sing your own song, you're able to let it out. In other words, as part of your leadership, you have to learn to sing it out for yourself. You have to learn that those subdued passions in you, others might not get them, others might not capture them. And so you have to learn to sing it out for yourself. And then the final point, chapter five ends with the sentence that 
The land was at peace for 40 years. And so what makes Deborah an important and a powerful teacher for us wasn't the fact that she was a woman. It was the fact that she led in such a way that yielded long-lasting peace. And so be a leader who brings about peace. And we recall that this whole story of the book of Judges is this, this cycle that the people of Israel always fell into. They obeyed the Lord, the land was at peace. They disobeyed the Lord by falling into idolatry and there was war. So be not only a leader who brings about peace, but be a leader who influences those around you to obey God. And then there will be peace. So I pray for you. I pray that you will have the selfless character of Deborah. I pray that you will have the illumination and the courage of Deborah. I pray for you that as a leader, you will have the desire to lift up others, to enable those who are around you and to lift up others to the place of honor so that you would work not as someone, a leader who's a lone ranger, a leader who is an independent, but that you would lead as a leader who understands that he or she is part of the system. And for the system to function, you have to be able to understand your connections with others. And as you begin to adopt and practice and apply these traits of the bee, apply these traits of Deborah, may you have long lasting obedience and peace. Amen.